0: Uh, Hello everyone. Uh, Welcome and thank you for coming out tonight for this uh, special event hosted by RMIT University uh, that will provide insights into the future industry trends, uh, advancements and opportunities in virtual reality and augmented reality. I would like to begin by first acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin nations as the traditional owners of the land in which we stand. RMIT University respectfully recognizes elders both past and present. Virtual reality is a technology that has threatened to be vaporware since the 1990s. Now that it's here, what are we using it for? And what should we be using it for? So my name is uh, Dr. Jonathan Duckworth, and I'll be facilitating the conversation this evening uh, with our panel to discuss what the cultural, business, and research applications uh, of virtual reality will be in uh, medical, entertainment, manufacturing, and other industries. Uh, I'm the founding director of Creative Intervention's Art and Rehabilitative Technology Lab, uh, which is in the Center for Games Design Research at RMIT University. The lab brings together research in interactive media art, digital design, game technology, and its application in allied health sciences. My research relates to the design of systems for movement rehabilitation for individuals with an acquired brain injury, an area which is increasingly using technologies like virtual and augmented reality. So in a moment, I'll speak briefly on the history and development of virtual and augmented reality technologies. Uh, but first I would like to introduce uh, our esteemed panel. Associate Professor Stefan Groeder. Uh, is the director of the Center for Games Design Research at RMIT University. Stefan's multidisciplinary research focuses on solving existing problems using innovative gaming technology. His latest project involved the use of head-mounted displays to visualize architectural models and to engage uh, audiences. You can see this in practice right now in the National Gallery of Victoria where Stefan has created a virtual reality project to accompany the Playful Pavilion designed by Matt Studio Architects that won the 2016 NGV Architectural Commission. So thank you, Stefan, for coming tonight. Uh, Our next speaker is uh, Emily Harridge. Uh, She's founder of Visual Playground. Uh, Emily Harridge has over 18 years' experience in broadcast design production, and animation. With skills and determination, Emily has been building her reputation and that of Visual Playground since 2002. Critical to this success is a constant focus on creative direction, staying up to date with new technology, and hiring highly talented digital artists across every aspect of production from location to the edit suite, combining live action footage, logos, opening titles, music, motion graphics, and visual effects to create strong and unique visual sequences with a lasting impact and value. Emily is passionate about virtual reality, which has led to the formation of Plato Reality, a new company dedicated to immersive storytelling in VR. And as the co-organizer of the popular real-world VR event held regularly at Loop Project Space in Bar. So thank you, Emily, for coming tonight. And last but not least is Chris McKenzie, um, the CEO of Opaque Holographic and executive director of Opaque Media Group. Previously working to help build Google's Tango API for Unreal Engine, Chris is currently leading OPEC's efforts to help find new, radically different, and more efficient ways of working using mixed reality devices, such as enabling collaboration in spatial design, removal of humans from high risk areas via telepresent solutions, mixed reality simulation and training, next generation communication, and many more applications. So thanks, Chris, for coming tonight as well. Yep. Right, that <laughs> so just a, a little bit of a background. What, what is virtual and augmented reality? So I'm just going to give a quick overview of the history of this technology before posing some questions to our panel. Uh, feel free to join the conversation online using the hashtag RMITVR. Uh, And there'll be time for for the audience to to ask questions towards the end of tonight's discussion. So in general, virtual reality is a term that implies a broad range of three-dimensional computer-simulated environments and associated hardware. And the conventionally held view of virtual reality is one where participant observers can be totally immersed in and are able to interact with a computer simulated three-dimensional virtual environment. So immersion comes from the devices that isolate the human senses sufficiently to make a person feel transported to another place. Interaction comes from the ability of the computer to change the scene's point of view as fast as you can alter your physical position and orientation. Virtual environments can be displayed via standard desktop monitors, single-screen projection, head-mounted displays which allow stereoscopic viewing via small monitors in each each eye, or multiple projected room-sized screens. So this is me as an architectural student uh, in the mid-90s. So I was fortunate enough to try out one of the earliest virtual reality systems to simulate an architectural project at the Technical University of Eindhoven. It was one one of the few architectural research labs in Europe to provide access to this technology at the time. So here I'm using the division divisor system, which typically costs in the region of about half a million dollars. Could render about 10,000 polygons at a total of 10 frames per second, which is now compared to 60 frames per second and up. It had two QVGA screens, so that's 320 by 240. The system was uh, resolution. The system was able to track your head movement and position within a sort of four meter diameter range. It used two computers, three breakout boxes to convert the input and output signals, 13 cables, 36 connectors of 12 different types. Uh, And it was simple to use if you had a couple of days to set it up. Uh, As complex as this system was, I do recall that it was able to provide a really compelling experience as long as you could get over the sore head that it gave you. It was quite a heavy device. Ten years later, this is me again. Um, This is in 2004. Uh, And so head-mounted displays uh, that were predominantly being used in research and military sort of environments were gradually replaced by semi-immersive wraparound screens which allowed the users... Uh, peripheral vision to be encompassed. This had distinct advantages in what the user sense, What the users' uh, senses were not so restricted and isolated as they are with head-mounted displays. This is one of the first acknowledged precursors to VR, which, uh, which is by Morton Heilig sensorama. And in 1962 he built a mechanical prototype to show several short celluloid films he had made for this display. The sensorama was able to display stereoscopic 3D images in a wide angle view. It provided sensations of motion via a vibrating seat, supply stereo sound, and also had tracks for wind and aromas to be triggered during the film. In 1966, Ivan Sutherland at MIT's Lincoln Laboratory performed what is widely believed to be the first experiments with head-mounted displays of different kinds and what he called the ultimate display. The weight of this head-mounted display and the need to track the head movements necessitated the device to being attached by a sort of mechanical arm suspended from the ceiling in the lab. Uh, And the system presented sort of wireframe graphics of sort of simple 3D shapes superimposed onto the surrounding uh, environment. So 20 years since I started my own journey into virtual reality, we are now witness to the sort of the rebirth of the medium with the arrival of the Oculus Rift, the HTC Vive, and other consumer-grade head-mounted displays. And the race is now on between competing manufacturers to develop the ultimate display, as coined by Ivan Sutherland. So I'm going to go to questions now to the panel. Uh, I'm going to ask Stefan, first of all. Um, You can still hear me? Um, So now that virtual reality and augmented reality is here, what are we using it for, and what should it be used for? So Stefan, how do you currently use VR and AI? sort of AR technologies in your
1: research? Mm -hmm. uh, I've made a little compilation of the things I've been working on, so maybe we can just play that. So since the release of the Oculus Development Kit 1 in 2013, I've um, investigated how it can be applied for use cases outside the entertainment domain, Uh, so locomotion so the ability for you to walk around in a virtual environment uh, was key to this and uh, as you can see early prototypes involved applications such as virtual tourism so you can walk around on the enterprise or you can kick a soccer ball Um, and we've done this by tracking the uh, player with a Kinect and um, so they actually had a full-body avatar in there that was uh, visualized with just a few cubes. And then later on, uh, we continued work on architectural visualization. So this prototype was about the um, refurbishment of the RMIT New Academic Street in collaboration with Lions Architects uh, for students who come to Open Day and basically experience how RMIT is going to transform. In late 2013, I worked with Professor Sarah Kenderdine and Professor Jerry Shaw on a digital cultural heritage project on the Cave 220 in Dunhuang on the Silk Road. It's one of 750 caves in the Gobi Desert and this location is so fragile that it has been permanently closed to the public and VR is now the only way to visit it. And so this cave was realized at one-to-one scale and every... Viewer had a full-body avatar, so you could see uh, a representation of yourself in there, and a backpack that wirelessly communicated with the tracking station. But that has its challenges. Obviously, the VR ruined the, the haircut, and um, also getting, off, uh, getting the, gearing the um, backpack on and off was also quite time-consuming. So for another work with Adam Nash, we've developed a visual, virtual art experience on the same system, but this time we've replaced the backpack with a long wire. If it's suspended from the ceiling, it wasn't such a big issue. you felt it a couple of times, but otherwise it worked quite well. And so here you could freely walk around in this um, abstract space. In this work for the Grand Prix, I investigated how the general public would respond to the virtual environment. It was quite interesting. People treated it as if these objects were real, Uh, so particularly we had to tell people they can sit in the car, which people did, and they tested the environment, and particularly kids were quite experimental, whereas older people... um, approach this a bit more traditionally, as, as I said, as, like, as if it was a real, a real car. And in the most recent work, if only, uh, this is an architectural experimentation space and it lets users experiment with different materials in the pavilion that's been designed by Matt Studios for the NGV Summer Pavilion Architecture Commission and to see the different effects of materials on the shadows that the building casts on the ground. So it's kind of a, um, the time in this experience is accelerated and a day passes in just three minutes. And if a user only has three minutes to A, get used to a virtual environment and then B, learn new skills to operate and interact with the virtual environment and navigate in a virtual environment that poses quite a few um, interesting questions at, as well. That uh, So a public performance in this way, our public experience is very different to that, what you can do on a computer when people have more time to experience it. So in a nutshell, um, I'm investigating how this technology that's been developed for the entertainment industry can be used in non-entertainment contexts, and what game design can offer to solve problem in other fields.
0: Thank you, Stefan. That's great. Thank you. So, Emily, what uh, what projects have uh, Visual Playground been developing and uh, using VR sure. and AR?
2: Okay. I mean, we we do a lot of work in the traditional space as well, um, which I believe there was a real playing earlier, which had some of the work that we that we do. Um, However, we've got a virtual reality show reel, which is probably a good place to start if you want to screen that, and then I can talk about some of the pieces of work um, after we've seen that. So um, our focus is more in the entertainment space and um, marketing, and um, we we are doing projects that touch on training and other areas of VR as well, tourism. And um, so I'll talk about the project that you can see behind you at the moment, behind me. Um, That was a project we did with Shane Jacobson for Isuzu. And this particular project, the idea was for a dealer activation in the Isuzu showroom where they had a new vehicle and they invited all the dealers to come to this particular event where they launched the vehicle and the idea was to go on a test drive with Shane Jacobson and you could experience what it was like to drive that that truck so um, we, we integrated graphics in, it was one take to camera, Shane was amazing and very very professional and um, it, it was very successful so it, it's a good example of how you can uh, I mean, it, it's, it's. I suppose it's probably more of an obvious one where you can drive a car that, that you know that's not that, that doesn't really exist, or in this case, put put yourself in a vehicle and go for a test drive. So, um, it's a nice way of, of showcasing a vehicle, um, and, and yeah. So that was that was highly successful. Um, the other project, and um, you'll just have to remember them, but um, one that we worked on recently was, for, was called Certify Me, which was a forklift certification company in the US. And um, this particular project, they, they, they do online forklift certif- certification training and they wanted to do a VR project, and at the time, the um, our client came to us, and we had a Skype call with him, and he held up one of the New York Times Google Cardboards, and he said, "So, what can I do with this?" And which is, you know, it's it's fantastic when you get a client who says that to you, and allows you to just be creative. And um, so we, we came up with this project with two characters that um, Joe and Gary, who were the Forklift. One of them was supervisor, and one of them was the the actual person learning on the job, and so we enabled us to, to to do go through the whole character design stage and come up with these cartoon characters and um, and explore what it's like to actually do things wrong when you're driving a forklift. And so we, the the way it works is you experience um, Joe does everything wrong first up and then he learns the second time around. And in his course of um, getting things wrong, it causes a lot of destruction, and often you see his supervisor lying on the ground, his head flying off. And um, <laughs> so, so it's a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun with it. And... Um, and it was, it's a great tool to to use for training to to showcase something in that way that you're not just going through the motions. You're you're learning, but it's it's fun and it's um and using cartoon characters. So we we developed um, three scenes in, and uh, what not to do and how to do it right by driving a forklift. And that um that we developed an app and the Google Cardboards uh, branded Cardboards that were distributed and. I mean, it's only been out a couple of months and it's already had over 4,500 views on YouTube. So, um, yeah, I mean, that that was that was a nice project. Um, another project that's not actually on there, that um, is a very recent project. I was actually um, up in Sydney yesterday for the ARIA Music Awards and we filmed the performances on stage of the artists. And um, they're, they're all online now um, to be able to see... Um, and so yeah, we're we're interested in live streaming applications and how to um, put um, put yourself um, in these places that you wouldn't normally be able to go to. And being on stage with the ARIA performance, I mean, what better way to, to showcase an event? Uh, so that that's a very, very recent project. Um, so the Australia's Got Talent one, I suppose, was uh, one we did last year. And that one, they were released on Facebook. So... Not quite VR, but um, they were three hundred sixty videos nonetheless, and they they were released at the time of the show, so I think it 's a really great tool, VR and three hundred sixty video that go hand in hand with entertainment, and everyone 's got a second screen so and every, everyone wants additional content these days, so to be able to provide VR is just another way of communicating um, so um, and i 'm trying to think of what some of the other projects are. Uh, that's probably a good yeah, enough yeah. Ex- a, overview of, of the type of work that we're doing in VR. Anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Emily. And and Chris, um, opaque holographic. It's a, it's a relatively new new company. Um, what, are you, what are you currently working on? What's, what sort of potential future projects are your team working on in that sort of space?
3: Sure. So um, I can talk a little bit about holographic, and I can talk about um, kind of where we come from from there. Um, Opaque is a diverse array of uh, different things going on, which is um, lots of fun but often hectic. Um, it would be remiss of me to, to come and not talk a little bit about some of the VR stuff we've done. Uh, Earthlight is probably the, the biggest, um, the most well-known of those, which is essentially the um, VR interactive journey of becoming an astronaut. Um, We've been very fortunate to be able to work closely with NASA in trying to replicate the experience from, you know, oh, cool, I got selected from, you know, I got selected for astronaut training. Wow, I've been, you know, a pilot, and now it's time to, you know, start this stuff, Mm to walking, uh, you know, you're in a neutral buoyancy laboratory, which is the giant... Like the world's biggest swimming pool, basically, um, you know, with divers kind of looking at you in the spacesuit trying to learn how to clamber around the outside the space station to going up into space. So um, while we're kind of working over that in that corner, I've been focused a lot on tool building. So I've spent um, the last quite a while actually working on um, particularly augmented reality. And next-generation augmented reality is the focus of opaque holographic. So what we aim to do is to take problems, particularly problems in business and enterprise, um, in Australia and around the world, and uh, find what we call the high-value problems. So uh, things that if you make a kind of a small difference, it makes a big impact Um uh, for example, if you've uh, mentioned taking people out of high-risk situations or maybe an, a enabling you to collaborate if you're, uh, you know, your cohorts are actually across the world, if you can cut out you know, 20 hours of flight time a person, if you can um, you know, remove four deaths a year in certain industries, you know, if you can um, restore production lines, which are millions of dollars in value um, you know, per hour... Um, if you can restore them a few hours faster, you've found areas where emergent technologies can make a huge difference. Um, And so kind of pushing the envelope of what's possible so that we can better service these problems has been my focus. I've been working with a couple of key technologies, mostly. You can see um, a friend and colleague, Christian, there, who is um, working with one of our shared holographic experiences. So he is pointing to... um, This is something we did with Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, So we wanted to essentially show off what we thought a construction site of the future could be, and um, we built two parts, a physical and a virtual booth. So the physical one was made to essentially replicate a construction site, you you know, you've got kind of bare experience, you can see wires there, and we wanted to show, uh, you know, overlaying things such as the virtual one which have pipes not only aligned where the real pipes were, but where the pipes should be. If you're an electrician, you could walk on and you could say, show me the electrical overlay, and it would appear, this is exactly what I need to plan out. So we wanted to take that step of, you know, read the pl- plans, kind of scratch your head, look around, work out where they go, and oh, this one's actually over there, to just being able to, and there's where I need to mark with a pencil, and now I can install it. It's aligned one-to-one. So really using that awareness that of the world that Augmented Reality allows now um, to enable people to work together and to do it faster. And he's just going over a kind of a proto-Gantt chart sort of thing, um, saying, you know, who is uh, who's responsible for which part of the virtual things? That obviously some of these are real and virtual, and some of them are only virtual. So, who do you yell at in order to make them real? And how quickly do you yell at them? Um, and we wanted to essentially play around with the idea of, you know, displays in, um, you know, in critical industries in the future. How is that going to work when you've got multiple people interacting with essentially a shared mediated version of the world? Um, and that brings me to some of the technological research and work that we've been doing. I think there maybe is one more picture of this. But we have um, been working uh, to develop for Google the Tango integration. So Google Tango is a little bit like a HoloLens in that it can understand where the world is, so it can place virtual objects. But instead of being on your head, it's actually on a tablet, so this is kind of augmented reality, which is you know it can be used for kind of the, a type of VR, I guess you could call it. Where they call it a magic window. So you hold up your tablet, you can move it about and see kind of into an ultimate dimension that um, you know you can you can move freely in six degrees of freedom. You can walk forward, and you'll walk forward perfectly um, in that. Uh, what's the word in that parallel world? Um, but it can also be used for augmented reality as well. It can be used to scan buildings to identify you know. Um, to build up 3D models of what it sees, uh, to be able to place objects and understand the depth of, you know, I know that table is roughly half a metre away. Um, You know, does a computer know that? Does a a phone know that? The Tango tablet is essentially established to help solve and add these capabilities. So we've been working to try and... um, uh, We built that up for the Unreal Engine, and what we wanted to do is make that accessible to um, essentially artists, designers, people who didn't necessarily have it huge coding background, but they could do visual scripting, they could follow flowcharts, they could, you know, they know what they wanted done. Um, we really wanted to focus on, as with our previous tool work, making sure that it's something that is usable for as, uh, as many people as possible, and really put it out there and see what people have built. So, you know, push it out to the community and see what they do. So, it's been excellent fun.
0: Thanks, Chris. That's great. Um, well, that sort of brings me to one of my first questions, which... Um, uh, which I, I might throw to you, Emily, or, or Chris, because you're, you're sort of embedding yourself in the entertainment industry and in other industries. And in terms of what you've seen out there, I mean, what what do you see as exciting applications of VR and AR? And who, sort of who's doing it well? Who, who's out there that sort of might be as exemplars, if you think, of, of other projects that, you, that you've seen? I mean... Um,
2: um, well, I mean, there's many projects apart from your own work, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, there's there's uh. <laughs> many good applications. I mean, in terms of brands who are doing things well, yeah. I think IKEA's putting themselves out there, yeah. having um, kitchens that you can design and and walk around. And I mean, I think that's one of the most downloaded games. It's yeah. a game basically, yeah. um, so that that's a very good experience. Um, and, and McDonald's have got it. they not even in um, in Melbourne or in Australia, but McDonald's are doing a lot with virtual reality and associating them, themselves with um, the, the um, packaging that can be made into a uh, VR headset from a Happy Meal box. Um, so there are a couple of brands that are doing things well. I mean, augmented reality that you can't go past Pokemon Go, yeah, um, <laughs> <of course. laughs> which I, I read um, has made more than 400, $440 million um,
0: Gosh, and, that. and
2: $3 million um, $3 million a day just on in-app purchases. Oh, goodness. And that's probably US as well. So that's a very good example of a successful brand using AR, yeah. um, which um, a lot of other brands can probably learn from. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in terms of... They're, they're just some, some brand examples, but I've seen some really great um, narrative-based work as well um, Nights on blindness is a, is a really strong piece about um, one man 's journey into how he became blind um, that 's a really nice piece if you can watch that one also the collisions piece that 's on at Acme at the moment is is a really nice example of how to tell storytelling in virtual reality and um, and it's a, I think it's free you can go in and, and um, yeah. To the VR cinema that they've got there set up there, and
0: you and you were involved in that yeah, project yourself. We yeah, we were. Yeah. We
2: provided the the Sync DAP solution. So, that yep. um, what that means is that it's, a, it's an experience that you can have up to. Well, I think they've got ten users at a time who can go in and, and watch that content, and it's all controlled centrally by one, by a device. And so you don't have to navigate the menus and control anything. You just sit down and and enjoy the piece. So it's it's an example of, of, you know, making it accessible to to the viewer rather than worrying about the technology. You can just have an an immersive experience. Uh, So for that, that, that's on at the moment. And uh, the other thing that it does is if one of the headsets overheats, then you you, you know that that's gone down, then you can replace it out and, and be across all of that. So... Um, yeah, so we were involved in that as yeah, well. Yeah,
0: great. Yep. What about you, Chris? Do you, um, so
3: good. Th- who's yeah, using it well? Who's inspiring you in this kind of space? Who's doing a really good I, job of this? Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, it's a little bit of a cheaty answer, but Microsoft's doing some very interesting stuff. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. They released a, Their research department released a video on holopitation, Recently, so um, for those who haven't heard of it, it's essentially a way of doing the Star Trek thing. They do a lot of things, so especially it's a essentially um, you see the three D, um, you know, the three D avatar of someone appear in a room. Um, the the consequences of that are very interesting because they've actually gotten a um, you know a three D person that can wander around in a space. And uh, see into someone else's space. So they've they've unpicked a new type of collaboration. Really, you can dive into someone else's you know kitchen, someone else's boardroom, and have a physical presence. And they can see your physical presence without needing to leave the room. I think it's kind of a next stage in, in um, you know the next version of, uh, I guess you'd say Skype or similar video conferencing so is to like be real, embodied. Yeah, it's like yeah. real sort of telepresence. You can be in a Exactly, yeah. yeah, and so to move that beyond. I think the other the other key is we're seeing a lot of um, groups who are using it quite cleverly in terms of um, uh, we've been working with hospitals who've been looking to um, essentially reduce the amount of time their equipment needs to be used for any training purposes. Mm. Um, you know, the MRIs, for example, sometimes uh, they'll need to have a whole MRI just set aside Massive, multi, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of machinery there that is only used to get people to go through and stay still. Um, if you can actually offload that, you've got a fully functioning device and you can increase the throughput of hospital tests by quite large percentage. So I think it's, um, it's interesting to see those kind of use cases bubble to the surface as people understand more what the power of these things is to, mm. you know, to train people, to give them an idea of what it's like to be someone else. Um, whether that's a, you know a healthy person or not, even if you're looking at you know replicating, we've worked with uh, Alzheimer's Australia, for example. Um, yes. AAV have been very good at um, kind of predicting what um, what they can do to augment their training. Um, they've worked to build a dementia experience, and um, we've helped them put something together which allows you to kind of see what it's like to have dementia. Um, they've been. A couple of... So we're seeing a lot in the medical space, I think. Um, and lastly, there's, there's a lot of exotic stuff, like NASA, of course, uh, well across this, and they have been for years, but now that the commercial technology is bubbling up, you know, they can really get their hands on some interesting things. They've got laboratories that are all about, you know, how can we use tech here on Earth, gaming tech, you know, tech that's emerging out of the business space to control arms on the ISS, to control robot astronauts. Like, there are really... You know, con- uh, especially to control the Mars uh, rover... Now that one is fantastic because they've taken something which took, you know, a PhD educated person to sit down and program in a terminal, you know, for several hours. They've taken a process that's needed this expertise and this time and they've distilled it into a user experience which is so Straightforward that a person can walk off the street and in sixty seconds, they're like, oh yeah, oh, cool, cool. I can make the Mars rover go there to there. <laughs> you know, and they, they can take yeah. this immensely concept, uh, complex process, and the computer can do the work. And I think that concept is important, and it's something that we're going to see a lot more of in the near future.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No thanks. You you're sort of a, you, you have, in fact, a, answered my next question. as it's yep. like who who's got a lot to gain from using these sort of technologies? And I think, as you say, the health health sector has a lot to to gain from using this. Um, I might sort of move along, though, and um, uh, perhaps ask Stefan, um, what do you think is different about the sort of VR and AR technology now compared to the past, and and why do you think it failed uh,
1: before? Hmm. So um, looking back at history after Jaron Lanier coined the term virtual reality uh, that quickly attracted, like, media attention... And the promise of virtual reality at that time was enormous and exaggerated through films like the um, Lawnmower Man that just couldn't be met with the available technology at the time. So like It was like, put these goggles on, go nowhere, but be transported anywhere, do anything. So that's a kind of escapism that's peddled by uh, drugs, alcohol, sex, and the art. And... Uh, throwing off the shackles of the mundane through the metaphysical transportation to an altered state. So that was, of course, a really, really big promise. And at the time VR required really expensive industrial computer setups and operators to calibrate the equipment all the time and uh, was therefore not as accessible as it is today. Like you had to go to an arcade or an amusement park to experience VR, as uh, if you didn't have access to a research lab. And the hype also sparked the development of VR interfaces for gaming that all of a sudden were trying to do what uh, supercomputers did before for sixty to $80,000, and um, that kind of left the enthusiasts rather dizzy and disappointed at that time. So this The vision at that time simply didn't match the means, and in the mid-90s VR as an industry basically closed up shop and investors moved to the glitzy and more promising technological revolution which was the internet. So what's different about VR today is that computers are faster now and the tracking is more uh, accurate and more reliable and uh, capable of providing people with the experiences that, that are commensurate with the quality of current computer games. And the technology is aimed and largely driven by the gaming market, which is also quite different because the gaming market is significantly larger than it was at that time. So I guess it's one of the biggest industries in the world these days and high volume sales means that the devices are now affordable to consumers and more devices means higher development budgets which generates uh, which generally provides an environment for more high quality experiences and because of that vr is more accessible today and available on multiple platforms you can use vr on your mobile phone you can access it through your pc or a console, and you can download VR experiences online, which is also quite a difference. And lastly, uh, there's also large amounts of investments made into VR, such as the 100 million dollar ViveX program that provides developers with uh, some funds to to experience to, to test uh, experiences that are outside the entertainment domain. And other schemes that help significantly push the technology, and there's a healthy amount of competition amongst several big companies, including uh, HTC, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, who are all pushing really hard for VR to succeed this time.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, sticking with with this sort of train of thought here. I mean, what do you think of the the challenges facing this current wave of technology? I mean, what do you think of the challenges there, Stefan?
1: So first and foremost, I think the biggest challenge for virtual reality and augmented reality is the same today than it was in the 80s, that, are, that is the expectation we have of the medium. So the fallacy that as far as games are concerned that many players expect that what they are currently playing that they will be able to play in VR, it's not just, that's not necessarily the case. Like, the first five or ten minutes in VR are amazing. Like, if you haven't tried it, you will probably come to the same conclusion. But um, after that, most people are quite happy to come back into the real world. And so I don't personally expect that people play games for hours on end with a VR device than what they would do on a normal computer. Uh, Also with VR and virtual reality and augmented reality devices come um, a certain set of affordances, so things that they can do and do better than other forms of media and limitations. And as as designers we need to, um, we can create better experiences if we design games and other uh, other applications with these affordances and limitations in mind, rather than to attempt to copy what we do now, and then make it VR. Uh, The other problem is that VR and AR are still not fully developed technologies, and that's also something you need to keep in mind. When we talk about virtual reality, what we actually really mean is a head-mounted display at the moment, and headphones, and controllers, uh, that allow us to inhabit and interact with the virtual environment, but if we truly want a virtual reality experience, we need to track our entire body um, as well as what happens in the space that we occupy and uh, simulate all of our senses, not just our um, vision and our audible sense.
0: So it's, I mean, VR and AR is obviously, it's a very sort of powerful technology and I think with any sort of powerful technology comes a, maybe a sense of responsibility in terms of how it's used. I mean, let's open this up to all of you. I mean, do you think there's any ethical issues around using this technology? And secondly, how can you envisage developing applications that might sort of benefit society? So I'll open that up to anyone who wants to tackle that
3: one. I can jump in. Yeah. Um, so, ethicals, uh, ethical, ethical questions, rather. Yes, that's that's very good that you've hit it. Um, absolutely, absolutely, in both virtual reality and augmented reality. Uh, one of the things that I'll touch on, but not speak too much about, is that there is a certain convention known as Sexpo That I think they've been plastering, they've been plastering things all over the university campuses that I've seen, and uh, their giveaway recently is a VR headset. Uh, I'm not going to touch too much on that, but the audience, as an exercise, I'm sure you can imagine uh, ethical questions that appear there. Um, There are a lot of uh, hidden ones, especially for augmented reality. Augmented reality, essentially, a lot of people miss that it's it's very easy to compare it immediately to VR and say, this is a thing I put on my head, and it makes things appear. But crucially, to do that, it is a technology that understands the world. And that means you are giving—you essentially creating a type of computer that has more awareness and embodied awareness of what it is and what it's looking at than ever before. And if we consider the kind of ethical privacy questions that we've been asking when things like the Google van drives down the street and takes photos, um, they're only going to compound when people are able to see and perceive using computers that are pervasive and everywhere. And this is one of the reasons I think, like two really interesting examples tie into this. I think the public is is cognizant of this; they're aware, and it's a big question of what does my privacy look like in a kind of you know this this new digital world. I think we've seen people. Um, you know using Google Glass the term the glass hole as people have called it when you've got a little camera on your face in places like San Francisco they had like you know no Google Glass you know posted on some of the trendier cafes that you couldn't come in in case you were recording people or anything like that it's perfectly fine to you know get your smartphone out and record people but if it was on your head then oh oh dear what's what's happening there i think a lot of these questions have led to now we see things like you know the the latest uh, HTC Vive has a camera it's for a slightly different reason but you know, and the Hololens, of course, has cameras on top of it for various useful and you know pragmatic reasons. Um, but if you notice the advertising, they're never out in public, never out in public with the Hololens. They're always, yeah, I'm in my office or I'm in my kitchen or I'm in a private enclosed space. Um, and I think that's for various reasons. But it's interesting to note, and I think it's a fairly clever move that we're not engaging with this question of what happens when the machines. Can not only record us but understand us as well. It's a little bit scary.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll talk about um, some of the other things that, in terms of ethics. I mean, there's th- what you have to consider: what happens in virtual reality and how that affects you in real life. So, if someone affects your personal space and invades your space, or you, you feel that and you respond and. Um, because your brain is tricked into believing that you're actually there and that you you become that person that that you see in the virtual world so what if someone does a violent act or a crime i mean these are all issues that are yet to be resolved and uh, you know it's going to bring up some some cases in the future no doubt where I think that already that, that you, you read about um, cases where game designers have um, designed a game game and they've created a space between someone's head so that you can't invade that head but then they haven't thought about the rest of the body and so and you'll have someone else who might reach out and touch them or, and and that's confronting and so you, as, as um, content creators I think we have to take responsibility for um, just being aware having that awareness of, of what it, the person who is going to be inside your game or inside your experience is going to be feeling and experiencing all these things and um, and uh, yeah so it's important to, to factor that in um, when you're designing the game and experience and I mean and the other thing is desensitisation desensitization, and especially with, with children because they have it, we don't know what the effects are going to be on children and if it's quite violent and this goes for anyone if it's a violent experience we know that largely computer games don't affect people um, in the real world. They know that it's, it's a game and they're not believing it and they can separate themselves. But who knows with virtual reality, if you spend a long time inside a game, in a violent game, how that's going to impact you and... And, you know, when you do get, go back into the real world, whether that's going to affect your behaviour. I mean, these are all unknowns. So I think there's, there's a, lot, a lot of questions that it raises that we're, we're going to be um, having to consider in, in the years to come.
0: Mm. Stefan, any thoughts? Oh,
2: well, I, I
1: don't know. I'm just thinking about the maturity of the technology. I mean, we all know that... There's been kind of a race to who will bring the first headset to the market, and that happened very, very quickly. And, um, and there's a, a lot of questions about the use of virtual reality that have actually not been fully resolved. I mean, if you have a, a virtual reality headset on, it replaces your vision. And, uh, and if you have headphones on as well, then you don't also you don't hear what happens around you. And uh, that is actually, that can be quite dangerous because your environment in which you're in isn't tracked. And that means, you know, if if a pet comes past and wants your attention, you actually don't necessarily see that and you might step on your pet or if <laughs> someone comes and uh, wants to know something and is next to you and you're just about to fight off zombies, <laughs> you might hit them on the head. So uh, there are these questions around it and apart from that they completely isolate you from what happens in the uh, the space. Whilst of course they may, this, these devices may help you to connect yourself with someone who is not in your space and it's who is far away and and uh, so it's all got its pros and cons but i think these technical issues we need to address really soon yeah so uh, the release of these headsets might have been a bit early
0: i mean that that raises a really interesting point i mean the, the i guess the elephant in the room is there's a certain percentage of people that feel motion sick mm. uh, i mean using this technology so it's a uh, particularly VR not not so much AR in fact I probably haven't heard of any cases of AR
3: sickness but um, but VR possibly yeah so it does yeah the raises a really interesting point um, AR, AR sickness is an interesting one because it, it can happen but it's okay. um, with the kind of the very latest generation technologies and I think they've been quite careful to box them in mm. you notice that they didn't we saw a lot of things like you know the tangos on faces and, um, you know, hololenses that um, didn't come out quite as soon. So that the notes Stefan said about, you know, maybe was it a bit too early? It's mm. always a very interesting question. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, you know, is one group holding back a bit more? Will that turn out yeah. to be a good play in the long run? Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Um, so before we open the questions to the audience, just got one last question for the panel. Um, in terms of what are you hoping for? So what would you like to see made possible or available to enable your future VR or AR ideas come to life? Is it a technological question or something
3: else? What would what what's the dream for what's, us? What's the dream for VR? What's for the you? dream for VR? That's an interesting one. I mean, like I think you, you hit it quite well, Stefan, with the idea of like our other senses aren't engaged. Mm. Um, I think in the in the short term there'll be a lot around. Working out the design limitations of collaboration, especially you know, I've I've got friends in like Korea, for example. Now it would be good to sit down and have a chat with them. Uh, I can't do that for obvious reasons. I can't take a twenty-minute lunch break and and have a you know a conversation and see them. And you know, see, uh, if, if I do, that's over video call, which is great. But you know, there's there's a step further in that um, we can't sit down and play video games together. We could in theory um, you know over network, but um, this would allow so much more. I think. Um, the idea of the the embodied experience is also very interesting. So um, spacewalk, for example, is is good because it shows you your body, and that's not something that's super common in VR experiences. Mm. And I think that it, it wouldn't surprise me if at some point we do see that becoming more more mainstream. Mm. Is that your VR set involves like a, maybe a Kinect style setup or um, some sort of body tracking? Um, mechanism. I know that there are a lot of suits and you know treadmills that are, people are trying to work with, to try and advance that. But um, I think when we see it bundled with the the thing itself, that'll be an interesting day. Lots to do with
2: that. I mean, I'd, I would like to see the technology improving in terms of the resolution and the the adoption of um, headsets and affordability, so that more people can have access to it. So just and and that which is you know it's inevitable really. Um, so that. People will there'll be more um, high quality experiences and more chances to, to travel and um, to these worlds, to imaginary worlds and places that you wouldn't normally go. So I think you know the, there's so much that creatively that you can do in this space and to, to transport people to somewhere new and experience something they wouldn't normally experience is is really exciting. So um, I, I just want to keep making those type of experiences for people. Yeah. Just
1: looking at how the
2: technology has progressed so far,
1: if I look back at the Oculus DK1 so with that one you could only do what you can do with a Google Cardboard, you could tilt it and you could only do that but it wouldn't actually record uh, side to side movements of your head or forward movements so that only came with the, the second iteration of that that you could move your body in a small space because obviously people have realized that That's important and it's kind of jarring when you move your head that your perspective vision doesn't give you that parallax effect so it doesn't change accordingly. And then being able to walk around in a virtual space, that was really a next uh, logical step and a really good one too because if you walk around with a joystick in a virtual space and you've got your head... Uh, your head-mounted display on, you get motion sick really quickly because your inner ear is telling you you're not moving and your eyes telling you you're moving. So on the brain, thinks you're poisoned or something, so you get sick. And, um, and I think so, I've been thinking, so what is then the next step after that so we can now feel like we're in a virtual space and we can walk around in a virtual space and I think the the latest... There was a video uh, that I've seen somewhere of a billiard or snooker player who's tried out the latest uh, billiard game in VR. And, of course, like he wanted to make a special move and lean on the table, and it wasn't there, so he fell <laughs> over. <laughs> so the next step uh, for me would be to look at merging the virtual with the real, so that when you are in um, a virtual world that the things that you see are actually really there to touch. And I think that is, again, a much, much stronger experience um, than what we've got now. Yeah, yeah, great.
0: Well, we might uh, open the questions to the audience. We've got two two roving mics um, anyone wants to stick their hand up, if they've got a, a question for anyone from the, the panel. I see one hand, a few hands going up, great. Hi, um,
1: uh, I am a uh, experienced programmer. I just want to know uh, what the VR technology can uh, change the way we program. And I have already saw something like scratch which is a UI programming language. So we, uh, but uh, if if we use VR, then we just uh, do something like in uh, Minecraft or something, uh, putting the building blocks together and build uh, the the program. So, uh, uh, do you think that uh, this would be uh, any benefit on it?
3: Cool. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So can programmers program in VR? I think there's two main There's two main things to this. The first is, what is your... I hate to use the word, but kind of paradigm, excuse me, of programming. Um, are you using text on a screen? Or are you using something like a visual flow? Is it a kind of an abstract language? Is, is it building blocks? Is it Minecraft? I definitely think that there will be solutions that allow you to teach programming and logical concepts using virtual reality. I think that there might be some in our near future. There might be the use of additional virtual screens. I think this is pretty cool. So the idea that you've got glasses on, usually augmented, but maybe uh, I think there are virtual reality versions coming out now. Instead of just having whatever is on your screen being a little block in front of you, You're not limited to that. You can actually add another one and another one and another one. You can throw up as many virtual screens as you like. And when you're programming, that's really useful if you can keep all the information you need close to hand. Um, So I think we'll see stuff like that. In terms of will we be coding in VR... I don't know, I honestly don't know I think it's going to come down to speed because when you're programming, unless you, you're really kind of experimenting with it it's all about how fast you can get stuff done So, mm. um, but I'm, I certainly think we'll see lots of cool experiments and the screens might be very useful Stefan, you do some programming, any thoughts? Yeah,
1: I, I, I can't really see that we are starting to program in VR uh, particularly not with the kind of resolution that uh, we've got on the headsets these days. Also, like, text is really hard to read in mm. virtual reality because you've only got a small area in the middle of the lens where everything's in focus and outside it gets a bit blurry. Um, but what I can say is that because when you, when you do professional programming... Um, it's not just a code, like very often you visualize the structure of a computer program using various languages like UML, Unified Modeling Language, where you can see how various components and objects in the source code, how they're interconnected so that you can see the bigger picture on how a program works. And I can see that that's something that, we, that you could do in VR where you can see an overview of the program that you are writing, or whilst you're designing, how a program should work, and that you can then go in and zoom in to various components and see that visually laid out.
3: Um, Chris, uh, this question is for you. Just um, you mentioned earlier that you did a bit of work with Hewlett Packard on the construction site or virtual construct or augmented reality construction site. How far did you go with that project, and I guess what was the main goal? Was it to showcase what this technology can do for, um, I guess, uh, medium to high-risk industries such as construction and mining, or was it was there more to that? It's a great question, so uh, the first is, they'll, they'll know if I don't say it, um, they uh, This was with Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, so we are very touchy, two companies now, one with a slightly different name, slightly different logo, Um, and they had a very interesting brief. Essentially, they wanted to explore the idea of what a mobile workforce is and could be. So there are a couple of other technologies they were demonstrating at the same time, including little beacons that, you know, instead of having just a kind of a meeting room, you could have little beacons that you kind of could book a space, if you're in like a you know, an outdoor area, you could rally your people towards you by, you know, uh, pressing an app and they would all know where to, to meet you. So that sort of thing. It's like exploring the idea of, you know, how can you take your workspace and use new technologies to actually twist around, uh, you know, what we need. You know, do we need a desk and four walls and, you know, little spaces for each person? Or can we mix it up a little? Can we actually define those on the fly as we need them? Um, so this was essentially uh, the the focus. They wanted to build a cent- kind of a centrepiece for that. And we wanted to explore what was possible in the construction space in a collaborative and a mediated way. So when I say that, I mean um, you have one experience which is... Ex- essentially perceived differently depending on who is there. If you're an electrician, you'll see wires. If you're a plumber, you'll see the pipes running up to the ceiling and the sprinklers. If you're a manager, you'll see the whole thing, what's there, what should be there, and what isn't there, and who you need to yell at to get it there. So essentially, we wanted to play with this idea with, you know, what, can we, what can we do to push that workspace forward if it's in a field force? So that was our main goal, yeah. And we are we quite pleased with where we landed. We wanted to take it out there and show people what we could do with this tech in the future. Um, what are some of the greatest marketing challenges you guys are finding? You know, like kind of doubts that clients are having, or yeah. that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, Just I can everyone. answer that. Um, um, there's plenty of good ideas around. Um, there's but there's often not the budgets to match them, <laughs> so that um, there's there's challenges there. There's a challenge in educating clients about what the, the production process is. And so there's a lot of education that's taking place at the moment, and we're doing we're doing a lot of demos. And I mean, I think it's great to just to get have everyone be informed about what's possible. Um, so, the, the, you know, the expectations, people, are, some of the things that, that, that we get asked are, can you? We we want to do um, a, a, an experience on a mobile phone, but we want to be able to walk around the space, and we're like, we wouldn't advise you to do that. <laughs> um, So obviously the Vive or the Oculus is designed for positional tracking, whereas Samsung Gear VR or um, any mobile phone experience is is more limited to 360 video. I mean, it can be done with an an external controller and you can put that motion in there, but it's it's not not a really great experience and you need a really highly powerful PC to run a a quality experience on a Vive or a... um, On an Oculus, so so a lot of it is getting the clients to understand what the limitations are in terms of the technology and advising them what what the best technology is to use. And um, some of them, you you, you know, they want to shoot something for VR and they think they have to use a, a camera rig with multiple cameras, and that's not always the case either. And you know, you can shoot a VR piece that's shot in segments and composited and with green screen and all the same techniques that you do normally in traditional film and production. So um, so these are some of the, the challenges and things that we have to explain to clients that um, when they're making the work and um, so, look, yeah, we there's there's a lot of interest and a lot of clients who are coming to us wanting to do projects, so yeah, it's, it's just um, getting them to understand what, um, what those, what, what's possible, really. Just uh, following on from the marketing question, from a, a budgeting point of view,
3: what's the difference and just ballpark me if you or ballpark scenarios um, from, say, using the Oculus to using, say, Samsung? What's, what am I looking at or what would someone be looking at?
2: Well, I mean, look, there's going to be a range with any, with any, even with any one technology. And um, so in terms of making a 360 video experience, I mean, there's a huge range. I mean, you could be shooting on a GoPro or a RED camera rig. I mean, there's the same challenges that you have with any shoot. And with limited budgets, you can still achieve a good result. So... Um, the, the, and I suppose when you consider, yeah, 360 video... You, you think of it in the terms of, of filmmaking and um, the production process is fairly similar in terms of, um, you, you know, you need a crew, you need your cast, you need your location, all of those things still apply. The biggest factor is probably the post-production at this point in time, and actually that's another thing that I would really like to see improved is stitching and not, and actually removing the need to stitch any footage um, Having cameras that, because at the moment you've got multiple cameras that have to be stitched together and um, getting rid of those seams and that's a big part of it. Um, So I would like to see cameras that can capture full 360 without any need for stitching or having automated stitch. And it's coming and there are cameras which can give you a live stitch but it's not perfect. So... um, So the post production is 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 a factor. That's a difference. The difference between making um, a normal um, video HD um, quality piece. Uh, There's more post involved. There's because you're working with more data. You're working. um, You've got the stitching. The yeah the files are bigger. So that you know you're working with 4K file output as opposed to 2K. Um, so that the the heavy that's heavier too, and even if you're doing something that's rendered, you've got to factor in all the rendering time because it's just very very heavy to render. So. Um but as opposed to something, oh um, yeah, something that's interactive. That, well, you've got all the programming that has to go on on top of it. So it, it, it's a bit of a balance because you don't then you don't have the rendering and you don't have the film production costs necessarily. <laughs> but you have you have to be, have all the modelling and um, programming, and so there's other considerations. So it's it's like um, it's very hard to, to sort of say what the difference is in budget. Uh, because every job is very, very different, and you have to consider it individually and um, and factor in what the output is. You know whether you're going to be going to um, Google Cardboard or is it is it Oculus? Like, what what is the output? What are you hoping to achieve? The um, branded cardboard apps. So there's a lot of factors that come into it. So every job is very, very different. Um, hi, um, this is the question to Emily. Um, just in terms of the story t- storytelling uh, what's the difference between the traditional film story storytelling and the vr storytelling okay so filmmaking has existed for over 100 years and we have this language of storytelling where the director controls the story and you know using it's almost like a window format where you you control where the viewer can look. You can use close-up shots, wide shots, quick cuts. We've got this language that's been developed over time. So when you're talking about creating storytelling in virtual reality, what you're what you're actually doing is the user becomes the director to a certain degree. You're setting up the scenes, but you can't control where that person who's experiencing it is going to be looking. So it's 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 different in terms of you can put clues to the storytelling inside that scene so that you don't just have one point of interest so that other things within the scene help inform the storyline you can be clever with trying to guide the viewer through audio cues and, and other um, visual cues you might have you want someone to look in a certain direction you might have someone who you're immediately looking at and then they turn to look at something which in turn makes you look over where they're looking. So there's ways of directing the flow and directing the view. Um, quick cuts are not really advised, but they can be done um, as long as you sort of settle on a scene. I think one of the, the other factors is VR, you, you need things to breathe a little bit more. You want people to take in more from the scene and experience um, rather, because if it's a very fast cut, you don't really get to take the whole scene in. Um, so that's important. That's another consideration. But a lot of the rules, there are no rules. You know, it's a new medium. So, and I think everyone should be just trying stuff and seeing what works and what doesn't. Um, Camera heights are important. If you've got different cameras from different heights, can be really disorienting and can make you feel quite uh, quite sick. And I think you want to make the viewer feel comfortable, and consider the camera. As a person, because that the camera is going to be the person who views the experience. So think about the height. Think about who who that character is, because the camera is almost like a character in the scene. So if the, is the camera at human height, it's it's probably a good place to start, unless you want them to to be a child or you want them to be a giant or something else. So think of that character as a that camera as a character. I mean, they're, they're, I could talk more, but there there are there's a few things. <laughs>
0: We've got time for one more question. I think so. um, there's been a lot of
1: discussion about virtual reality tonight. I'm just interested in what the panel has to say about augmented reality and what you see as the trends in that area at the moment.
3: Cool. Um, I think I can talk to that. So that's that's my uh, uh, that's my main area of focus at the moment. Um, I know Stefan, you're doing a little bit of AR work at the moment, or don't know if very little. <laughs> Very little? Okay, cool. Um, okay, I'll rant then. <laughs> so I think the um, the main key... I touched on it a little before. I think the main key is that um, these devices are things that can perceive the world, and that's the key to being able to... Essentially, place virtual objects within them. You know whether that's you know putting a virtual puppy on your table, whether that's you know playing a virtual game of Jenga. That has to have come with a certain amount of awareness of where the table is, where the floor is, where you are, how you're moving. You know, um, and that all has to happen in an incredibly quick amount of time. So we can derive a few things from this. Number one, computers getting really good. Uh, smartphone essentially components are filtering into these devices and that means that we've got lots of cameras which are really cheap, we've got a lot of optical stuff which is getting very uh, very inexpensive as we're seeing in the VR one as well, a lot of them started with essentially just phone screens transplanted onto, and a lot of them are still just phone screens transplanted, we're seeing the essentially the, um, the advances in mobile phone technology filter through to AR, and there's more to come as well. I think we'll see it go both ways. I wouldn't be surprised in if maybe two years we're seeing the point where you can just get out your phone, take a photo of something, and it's like, oh yeah, cool. I think you're there. I think you're at this point of the city looking at this shop. Um, so I think that we, we're going to see a lot of uh, we're going to see a lot of new possibilities, not only with the high end kind of headsets, but also what's going to happen with your regular phone. Whether that'll include some new technologies like depth sensing, whether that's going to allow you know the kind of world understanding that uh, the headsets have been working on. Uh, I think that uh, we're going to see a lot of crossover between the two. So mm. I think it's an exciting time. Yeah. Can I,
1: can I add to that that I mean if you, if you think about where this is going, um, virtual reality probably now at the moment has a bit of an advantage because you um, the technology doesn't need to be that miniaturized to use it and you can connect it to a powerful computer to get uh, a great uh, visual result to immerse yourself in but as... Augmented reality devices become better. That means the resolution that you see is bigger. The point of view, which is at the moment only like 60 degrees, you know, is extended to 180 degrees, and the uh, translucency of the pixels on the screen can become darker. Every augmented reality device can become a virtual reality device. And, you can, and the advantage of augmented reality is that you are still in the real world and uh, that means you're not completely isolating yourself from the environment you're in. And um, it also means people become less nauseous because they can still see the real world but at the same time you can block out however much you, you want to immerse yourself in a virtual world. And I think that's quite powerful, and I can perceive that in the future both devices either merge into one or augmented reality is replacing virtual reality. But that's still a long way until then, so at least five years, I (laughs) would cautiously guess.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of tonight's proceedings. Um, I'd like you to... um Raise a hand and thank all of our speakers tonight. Uh, it was a fantastic and really interesting discussion. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, Ben Bucknell and his team at RMIT for organising such a fantastic event tonight. So, thank you very much for that. And finally, I thank you all for
1: for coming tonight. It's been great to have you here, so thanks. Thank you.